of those things that's hard to, to know how to speak to people about, isn't it? What do you say uh, to somebody who's got cancer? And I know that many people have uh, actually refrained from saying anything for fear of saying the wrong thing. Uh, just a little tip, uh, don't worry about putting your foot in your mouth. Uh, it's really good for people to speak up and to be there and to love others. Uh, even if you end up saying something that's really quite awkward. And I can tell you plenty of awkward things that people have had to, had to say to me. Uh, but one of the really awkward things um, that I hear often, and it, it doesn't actually worry me anymore, uh, is people saying, so what's the prognosis? And by that, really, what they're wanting uh, you to say is, how long have you got left to live? And uh, I, I've heard that in various ways over the last few weeks. And... There was one particular lady who, who didn't ask that question. She just simply said, so how long have you got to live? And I thought that must be about the, the bravest and clunkiest question I've ever been asked. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, by the way, and God hasn't actually told me. But I have come to the understanding over a number of years that I don't know, but God does. And there's nothing that I can do to change that. But I need to reflect on that reality. And one of the ways that I've sought to reflect on that reality over the last few years is to keep coming back to this psalm, to Psalm 90. And I'd encourage you to have it open, uh, keep your Bibles open. We'll, we'll dip into it. Uh, you can see I've got a very detailed outline uh, inside uh, your handouts. If you are somebody who likes to write notes, uh, I'll try and give you some tips along the way. But just scribble down whatever you want. Uh, that's my first tip. Um, it's fascinating, this idea of time, though, isn't it? And, and particularly in relation to sport. Uh, I, I love sport. I used to love playing sport. I now love watching sport. And sport's something that is very time-defined. Uh, we're, we're coming up to the Olympics again. You know, everyone's kind of uh, getting prepared for these, these big events that take place. Uh, and one of the events that's really quite extraordinary when you think about it uh, is the 100 metres uh, running sprint. Because people train for four years, they spend large amounts of time every day to spend the shortest amount of time possible that they can on the racetrack. And it will come down to literally a one one-hundredth of a second difference. And so you have this massive amount of time that's put into something that is gone before you can even blink. And you can imagine, can't you, some uh, relative who's uh, spent huge amounts of money and they've been invested in, in, in their loved one preparing for this event, just busting to go to the toilet. Um, they, they race out to go to the toilet and they come back and the 100 metres final, it's already finished. And, and they miss their son after all of that hard work. Uh, well, when you've got clarity about time, it kind of focuses the mind. Uh, how many of you are, are students or have been students recently? Quite a few of you. There's, there's this thing, really. It's called the exam period. And the exam period focuses the mind, does it not? I, I used to learn incredible things in exam periods. I had a whole year to have fun and occasionally go along to lectures and, and 
and, and hang out with the other people who were in the same course, having fun, occasionally going to lectures. But come exam period, you actually learn something in the subject. Uh, and if you don't learn something in the subject, then you'll turn up at that exam and you'll have to do a whole year again. And I had one friend who did fourth year medicine four times because he wasn't focused on that exam period. He filled his year with other things. Or perhaps if you're out in the workforce, there's something that focuses uh, your thinking when it comes to money, isn't it? It's called tax time. Uh, and all of a sudden, you've got to work out what it is that you've spent, what it is that you've earned. Uh, and you realise that there's a little bit of an imbalance along the way somewhere. And uh, we got a shock, actually, it's all my fault, but uh, we got a shock last year when we discovered that we thought, uh, well, I thought we'd been earning a lot of extra money for the previous 18 months, but we just hadn't been paying any tax on it. And we suddenly got a bill for $50,000 for two years of unpaid taxes. You see, there's something about being called to account where there's a time that you need to give an account for what you've been doing and not been doing that sharpens the focus. Well, this is a psalm that talks about the nature of time and it, indeed it, it really sharpens our focus as to what the nature of our lives is about. Have a look with me at some of the verses that, that are <coughs> pardon me, giving us a perspective on time. Now, first of all, this is a psalm of Moses, the man of God, and it's a psalm of faith because he talks about the Lord who has been his dwelling place through all generations. But let's look at these time references. So down in verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. So we learn something here about the difference between God and mankind. With God, a thousand years are like a day and a night. I mean, in God's eternal purposes, in God's very, very big picture, uh, we are just something that comes and goes. We are, we are just quickly here and we are quickly gone. And he talks about, in verse 3, people returning to dust. We're mere mortals. So we have the eternal God who oversees all things for all time. And we have human beings who come and they're quickly gone. Or down in uh, verse 6, in the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. Or down in verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. And then this specific reference in verse 10, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away again. And finally, in verse 12, teach us to number our days. So of, of all of the Psalms, this one particularly focuses on the nature of time and the nature of time that we've got. And it talks about the life expectation, doesn't it? 70 years or perhaps 80 if we're strong. Now, bear in mind, this was written uh, at the time of Moses. Moses lived to a pretty good age. Not as good as the people right back at the beginning of Genesis, like Methuselah, who was pushing uh, uh, a thousand years before he passed away. 
But the reality is life expectancy from that time until now in the healthiest of circumstances has pretty much been around the 70 to 80 kind of uh, life expectancy, hasn't it? Indeed, uh, Australian statistics can tell you that the life expectancy for a man in Australia is 79 years. The life expectancy for a woman in Australia, however, is 84 years. Five years of difference there. That could be why uh, my eldest son married a woman who's six years older than him so that they can spend most of their days together. <laughs> All right? Now, sometimes people live longer. I was uh, in Brisbane just last week and I was sharing at an outreach event for uh, a bunch of primarily ladies uh, on a Tuesday morning at a church. And as I looked around, I thought, yeah, they're pretty much all retired. They've pretty much reached their latter days. And I suspect that they were mainly women because most of them had already lost their husbands, the women living a little bit longer. And then one woman got up to thank me for coming and talking. And I discovered that she was 80 years of age. She turned 80 last year. But then the extraordinary thing was she had brought her mum to the event. Her mum was 102. Now that's pretty exciting, isn't it? To actually pass over the tonne, to actually make it to 100 and uh, being a, a, a part of the British Empire in Australia, people, I understand, still get letters from the Queen if they make it to 100. In fact, the person who took over as the, the pastor of the church that I led in Canberra, a guy called Marcus Reeves, his grandmother was the oldest woman in Canberra and may well have been in Australia, I don't know. She lived to just before her 108th birthday. But that's about it, all right? You can push it to the extremes. Some people will make 100. Most people will make it into their 80s. Some people won't live that long and you'll get a spread, a range. But we do not live forever. And friends, we need to realise the harsh reality of that. We're not going to live forever. We won't go on in this world, in this life, living forever. God has made it to be that way. By the way, I think that's a good thing because the older we get, the sicker we get, the frailer we get, and the more we know that we cannot cope in this life. But the younger we are, the fitter we are, the more expectations for the future that we have, the more danger is that we don't factor in the reality of our own mortality. I, I can tell you the case that back in 2011, uh, I, together with my wife and a couple of our children and a bunch of other people, families from around Canberra and other parts of Australia, are looking forward to a new beginning. We're planning to move from Canberra, where we live, to Darwin. We're going to move to a new house, a new place, to new jobs, to plant a new church. And we had a whole future expectation ahead of us. And then I'm diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And what I thought was probably a midlife crisis, you know, here I am at the age of 49, thinking about what I'm going to do, say, for the next 20 years, the next 30 years, all of a sudden it becomes an end of life crisis. I'm being told that I probably won't live for another 12 months. You see, 
it often takes things of that severity to remind us of the truth that we will not go on forever and forever. The younger we are, the fitter we are, the more we think we'll always be able to do whatever we want to do. And I think the nature of a midlife crisis is realising that you've, you've kind of got over halfway through your life and you haven't got close to doing half the things you wanted to do and you've now experienced the, the fittest, most active period of your life. It's only going to go downhill from this point on, so you've got no chance of achieving what you want to achieve. And so you have a midlife crisis. Well, friends, let me tell you, a midlife crisis is a good thing to have. And I want to suggest that you don't wait until midlife to have it. Have it now. You might already be past midlife, and you won't know if you are, will you? I guess if you're over 50, there's a pretty good guess. But, but for, for, we don't know what our days are, but realise this, that they're not forever. Now, there's nothing particularly biblically profound about what I've said yet, is there? I, I'm saying you're not going to live forever. Well, duh. You know, what is the death rate in Australia? Exactly the same as it was last year. It's 100%, Right? I'm not saying anything that, that the Australian Bureau of Statistics couldn't tell you and I'm not telling you anything that funeral directors are not delighted by. They're never going to go out of business, right? You, you want a job where you're guaranteed a future? Become a funeral director. Because no matter what fashions and trends come and go, death will always be in. Now, you might think I'm being a little bit flippant here and, and a little bit casual about something that's so significant. I'm doing that because that's the way we live. We live as though that is not true. But it's not something that we need the Bible to tell us. What we need the Bible to tell us is why. Why will we not live forever? Why are our days numbered? Why do we come and go from morning to night? Why is it? And the Bible in this passage gives us reasons. Have a look at some of the language that gets used here. Verse 7. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. Verse 9. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Verse 11. If only we knew the power of your anger... Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. You see, the, the ABS, Australian Bureau of Statistics, can tell us that we're going to die, but it can't tell us why the Bible does. It tells us that death comes about because God is angry with us. Look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Now, we don't have time to go into all of the background of this, but the Bible's picture is very clear when it comes to the reason for death. God said to the man and the woman in the garden that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they would die. The devil said, ah, you're not going to die. That's not going to happen. You know, you'll, you'll be right. You'll go on. You'll live forever. God knows God's... He's kind of, you know, deceiving you here. But the one deceiving was the deceiver, was the serpent. And they ate from that. 
and they were cast out of the garden and they became mortal. They died. Not straight away, but it did happen. And it has happened again and again and again and again. Now, there are two exceptions. There are a little, a little unusual in the Bible. There's a guy called Enoch who walked with God and then he was no more. There's a guy called Elijah who was taken in a chariot to heaven. But other than those two, as far as I can see reading through the scriptures, everyone dies. Because everyone is guilty of turning their back upon God. That's sin. And God, therefore, is angry with us because of our sin. And the promised judgment for that sin is that we will die. Of course, it's not simply death. It's death and judgment. The Bible calls it the second death, being the death of judgment. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it says that it's appointed for people to die once and after that to face judgment. Jesus himself in Matthew says, Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, death is a serious event on our calendar. We may not know when, but we can know why. It's because God is angry with us for turning our back upon him. And because of that, there will be death and there will be judgment. And we need to reckon on those things, friends. Two sobering facts that most people choose to ignore. They ignore the fact that one day they will die. And even more seriously, they ignore the fact that after death, they will face judgment. And I'm opening this psalm being reminded of this, as are you. Factor this into your plans. Put this in your diary. You might be wondering, what day should I put it into my diary? It's not about what day. It's about reckoning on this reality. Put it on every day, if you like. How should we respond then? Well, I take it not by living as though we have all the time in the world. Not by living as though we have all the time in the world. And Moses responds in prayer to God. And I want to highlight his three petitions. Because I think as we look at these petitions, we gain an insight into how to live in the light of our mortality and how to live in the light of the judgment of God to come. And so, the first of those is verse 12, teach us to number our days. The second, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. The third, in verse 17, establish the work of our hands for us. Let's take each of these in turn. First of all, teach us to number our days, verse 12, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What does he mean there, teach us to number our days? When I first looked at this, I, I kind of had in mind that, that cartoon picture of someone in a prison cell. And, you know, they've got their, their, they've got their stick or their stone or, or, or their fork or whatever, and they're, they're scratching another day off on the wall of the prison cell and crossing it out. And, and they're working down their sentence 
problem is you can't work down your sentence because you don't know. But do know this. What is it to number our days? Well, I think it's to recognise that our days are numbered and therefore to make every day count. To, to actually number our days is to take seriously every day that God gives us as a gift from him. Stewardship. We use the word stewardship, don't we, about, about money. Do you use that language here in this church from time to time? We want to be stewards of the money that God gives us. Here's another way of thinking about it. Be stewards of your days. God has given you days. Be stewards of those days. Use those days in the way God would have you use those days. What does that mean then, to number your days? Well, let me give you some suggestions here. Lord, teach me to value every day, every week, every month, every year. Make that your prayer. Lord, teach me to appreciate that I have a life to live for you. And there are a number of things that will flow from that, won't you? There will be a recognition of the brevity of life. This psalm just drips with that theme. God, a thousand years are like a day. For us, it's like morning and evening. In another part of the scriptures, it says that we're like that kind of grass that grows up and then the hot wind blows it away, dust, and we're gone. Our days are short. Therefore, focus on the brevity. And in the same way that that exam period makes relevant what you choose to spend your time on, factor in the fact that you're going to die one day and face judgment, and that should factor in shaping the way that you live your life. Brevity. Secondly, I think it's important that we live each day as though it might be our last. Now, we need to be careful with that one, don't we? Because it's, if you knew that this was your last day, you might do nothing. You might be tempted to think, what's the point? So you, you want to live each day as though it's your last, but assuming that it's not, if, that, if that, that makes any sense. That is, there's an urgency about the time because it might be your last day. So don't put off something that is critically important. I'll give you an example of this that took place for me yesterday. A friend from Canberra, her, her, um, uh, her, her, she and her brother became Christians in our ministry back in 1990. Uh, their mother became a Christian about three years ago in the months before she died. Their father is in hospital in critical care at the moment and expected to go at any time. And... They're not sure where he's at with God. They asked if he would be happy to talk to me on the telephone. And so we lined up a call at uh, 10.30 yesterday morning and I spoke to him. It was a very different phone call from your typical phone call. The typical phone call might be, how are you doing? Um, how's the weather? Uh, what do you think of the Raiders' chances of, uh, of winning the premiership this year? Uh, you got any plans for the holidays? How's work? No, sorry, how's, how's retirement? That might be the typical conversation, but numbering your days kind of brought a very pointed focus to the conversation. And I found myself moving very, very quickly to say, 
How do, you think, how do you think things are between you and God? Not too good, he said. Do you feel like you've come to the point where you're at peace with God? No, not yet, he said. You see, if you put off things that are important like that, then you may not get the opportunity. Live each day as though it's your last. That is... Focus on the things that matter most. Because if we always dally with those things, we'll come a day when we won't have time for any of them. I think also it reminds us that we need to have a certain humility with our planning. I like to put it this way now. Make your plans in pencil, not in pen. See, we thought that we were headed to Darwin to plant a new church. And we had no idea that I was entered into a serious cancer diagnosis where I would not be able to do any of those things. In fact, thought I couldn't do much at all. We can make plans, can't we? But, but God is the one who fundamentally plans our steps. It's important that we make plans. The Bible calls us to do that. But it reminds us that God is the one who will actually shape our path. And I was uh, pointed very quickly after these things happened to James chapter 4, where, where it says, those of you who say, I'm going to go to this city and start up a business and make money and, and do this and do that, hey, you don't even know what you are. You're just a mist or a vapour. <sighs> and then you're gone. Instead, you should say, it says, if it is God's will, I will do this or do that. And I found myself, in a very genuine way, entering the language of God willing into my speech, into my conversation. I'm headed to a conference tomorrow, God willing. I'm hoping to catch up with some people, God willing. My plans are that I'll come and, and uh, visit this church again sometime, God willing. You see, numbering our days is a recognition that God is the one who has set our days in place. Every day should be a holiday. That sounds good. But you know what a holiday is? It's literally a holy day. That's where it comes from. Every day should be a day for the Lord. Uh, uh, what can I do for you today, God, day? Every day should be shaped by prayer, asking the one who gives us the day, to enable us to use the day for his sake, to make it holy. We should learn about God and, and how to fill our time, what to make a priority by looking at his word. And then lastly, under numbering our days, I do want to say to you that I think it's hard when it's open-ended. It's hard to be focused and clear and purposeful when it's open-ended. God has given us a limited time so that we might make priorities. There are 24 hours in a day for a reason. Seven days in a week for a reason. 30 days in a month on average for a reason. 12 months in a year for a reason. That is... If we had all the time in the world, nothing would matter. 
Nothing. You'd be able to get around to everything when you felt like it. But because days are short, weeks are short, months are short, years are short, and lives are short, then we must make priorities, we must choose, and do what matters matter. So let's pray God teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. That's his first prayer. The second, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds, and, and we'll go on to that next. It's interesting, isn't it? Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And then look at the character of the days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, for as many years as we've seen trouble. Please, God, make me happy for the miserable life that I live. Kind of sounds a little bit like that, but isn't there a dose of reality there? Isn't it true that there's tough things in life? Hands up if you've ever broken a bone. Okay, a few of you. The rest of you should get a life, all right? <laughs> you've been mollycoddled in cotton wool for too long. You need to break a bone. You need to get out there and you need to do something because pain actually is the essence of life in a world that has been subjected to frustration. There's sickness, there's tragedy, there's suffering, there's depression. There's broken relationships, and that is life. And we're encouraged to gratitude. We're encouraged to be satisfied by God's unfailing love. And there's an extraordinary wisdom in that, isn't there? Because we live in a world that tries to be satisfied by everything at our disposal. See, the the secular prayer is this, Lord, satisfy me by my work, by, by, by the incredible things that I can achieve. Satisfy me by my relationships, that everything might be, might be intensely intimate, that, that we might experience the wonder of passionate love all the time. Lord, satisfy me by a bigger income. Satisfy me by world travel. Satisfy me by the latest car or motorcycle. Satisfy me by... And we're looking to our circumstances to make value in our lives. But they won't. And they don't. Now, what will satisfy us in the morning and the night is God's unfailing love. So, Father, fill me with an understanding, a deep and wide understanding, grasp of your unfailing love for me. And where do I see that? Where do you see the unfailing love of God? Try looking outside Jerusalem on a hill, on a cross where Jesus, the Son of God, is giving up his life for you. That's where you see God's unfailing love. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his one and only son to be a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. That is love. Lord, may we be satisfied by your unfailing love. The problem is we live lives where we grumble and complain. The problem is that we look around about to other things and experiences to find satisfaction and we fail. As the rest of our world fails. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy good relationships. That's a wonderful gift from God when we do. Doesn't mean we can't find satisfaction in our work. It's a wonderful gift from God when we do. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy a, a holiday. Doesn't mean you can't in, enjoy a home. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy possessions. But that's not where satisfaction comes from, friends. Knowing the satisfying, unfailing love of God. That's how we should pray. Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And it's that that will enable us to live lives of joy and gratitude in the face of suffering. Thirdly, verse 17, May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's an interesting one, this one, isn't it? Because it's a prayer to make our lives count, in particular, to make our work count. Lord, establish the work of my hands, of our hands. What is the work that's on view here? Is it, is it the work that I do in the office, that I do at the university? Is it the work that I do in my, in my home, in my family? What is the work that's on view? What's he getting at here? Well, we need to remember the context. Come back to verse 16. May your deeds or your work be shown to your servants, your splendour to their children. May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us. Then he says, establish the work of our hands and repeats it. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I think we need to grasp that, that it's a prayer that God will establish our work in the context of his work. That is, it's God's deeds that are to be shown. It's his splendour that is to be demonstrated to their children. It's God's favour that is to rest on us. And in the context of this, we pray that God will establish the work of our hands. See, if the work of our hands is to run in the opposite direction to God and God's work, th then it's a sinful prayer, is it not? But if we grasp the context of God's work and what God's doing, and we are making our lives, our days count, and we're grateful to God for his unfailing love, then what we do, what we work at in the context of his work that's what he is to establish. Now, there's an important verse, I think, in this regard. And it's a verse that makes sense against the backdrop of the Old Testament. So the verse is the last verse in 1 Corinthians 15, which says uh, that your work in the Lord is not in vain. It's not vanity. 
It's not meaningless. Now, that verse is to be understood in the backdrop, against the backdrop of Ecclesiastes. You read Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament? Uh, what does it say about work? Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or in the older translations, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. That is, life under the sun, lived for work, is meaningless. Because you'll work to build a bridge, and then your country will go to war, and the bridge will be bombed, and your whole work will be destroyed. Or you'll work to build a business, and you'll hand it on to your children, and they'll be disinterested in the business, sell it off, and go and spend their money on something else. See, for everything that is done, it gets undone. And that makes things meaningless. And, and the key thing in the book of Ecclesiastes that makes things meaningless is death. It's the fact that you will die that makes every achievement in life meaningless. And that's why it's so powerful to see the opposite in 1 Corinthians 15. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is all about rescue from death. It's all about not only dying, but being raised from the dead. And so it talks about a work that is not meaningless, that's not vanity, that will not be destroyed by death itself. And that is the work that endures into the resurrection. So that is your labour that is not meaningless. That is your work that is not in vain. Are you at work for something that will last for eternity? That's a question to ask yourself. That's not rhetorical. Are you at work for something which will last for eternity? Now, I, I thought when I retired, I might become a barrister. You know, those guys with vans that make coffees for people? I thought that's what I'd do. Right? Um, but making coffees for people is not really likely to prepare them for eternity. Now, it can be a good thing to do, it could be a good job to do, it could be a fun thing to do, it could open up opportunities for relationships, it could build connections, it could connect with me with people to the point where we start to talk about life and death matters, where I'm able to push into things of more significance, where I can talk about God, Jesus, dying and being raised from the dead. Now, my work as a barrister, sorry, I won't be silly, as a barista, could well enable a work of the Lord, right? Making coffees, well, that's important. I can't start the day without one. I thank God for all the baristas. But the work of the Lord, that endures forever. And I suspect that to fully understand what's being said here in verse 17... Under the words of Moses, that he wants his work to be established by God, for his work is involved in rescuing the people of God and bringing them to the promised land. And you know the wonderful thing? Every Christian, every member of the disciple-making trainee squad which is all of you, by the way, even if you haven't turned up yet, can be a work of the Lord, can be a work for all eternity. So let's pray 
in the light of our mortality, in the light of the coming judgment of our God, and especially in the light of the unfailing love of God in the gospel, that we will number our days, that we'll find satisfaction in God's unfailing love, and that God will establish the work that we do for him for all eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for Moses' spirit-inspired words that help us now, uh, millenniums later, to reflect on the brevity of our lives, the absolute reality of our mortality, our impending deaths and judgment to live lives here and now that are significant. Significant because you make them significant. Please, may we number our days. May we be satisfied with your unfailing love. And please establish the work of our hands in keeping with your work, we pray. Amen.